Hi there, I'm Dave Burse. I'm the host of this podcast and founder of inspiration company Additive. So come in, leave your shoes at the door. Can I take your jacket? Oh, please pick that up. Thank you. Now, once you're good and ready, we'll get into the next Assorted Nuts special edition podcast. And today's interview is with one of the most awarded copywriters of all time, Tony Brignall. In fact, we're going to see if he wins the most awarded copywriter award at Tuesday's DNAD 50th anniversary bash because they're giving out an award for just that category. It was the original Doyle Dane Bernbach work that inspired Tony to get into advertising in the first place. So in the photo you can see him admiring a beetle on the end of his finger, a portrait done by Julian Hanford. And if you want to see a bigger zoomable version, click on the link on screen. That should take you there. Now, Tony was one of the main men at CDP in its heyday, and he was responsible for some of its most memorable ads. If you're lucky enough to have a copy of the DNAD copybook, you can read some of his brilliant wisdom in there. Unfortunately, both of my copies of that precious tome have gone missing. But I got one up on those thieving bastard creatives who plundered my library. I got to actually spend time with the man himself in his Buckinghamshire bolt hole, where we drank coffee and chatted long after the microphone was packed away. So without any further jibber-jabber, here's the legendary advertising wordsmith himself, Tony Brignall. I'm in the heart of the Chiltern countryside with Tony Brignall. Hello, Tony. Hi. Now, you've been all the way through the ad industry. Uh, You made it to the top in your time there, and you've come out the other end. Could you give us a a quick rundown of your career? I don't think I had the qualifications that would get me into advertising today. Um, It's much more difficult for young people nowadays. Um, When I joined advertising... There were lots of jobs around, really. Um, I was applied to J. Walter Thompson, and they were about to start a training scheme for people who hadn't been to university. And um, it was for three years. So you would spend six months in each department of the major departments, and then three months in the lesser ones, and two weeks in sort of like PR. And the idea was that you'd come out a fully rounded account representative. They called them account reps in those days. And I remember they wore beautiful clothes and hats most of the time. Um, Most of them were men. The creative department was colossal. I mean, it had something like 40 copywriters. um, And I was the youngest of them when I eventually I spent my six months there. Before that, however, I had had to spend three months in a grocer's shop just to get the feeling of the business. And then I spent six months in marketing, six months in media. Then when I got into the creative department, I knew I wanted to stay there. And I'd been writing some poetry and some stories. And um, they asked me to do the copy test. And... Either it was fudged in my favour or I passed it genuinely. I've never really found out why. (laughs) But I was taken on into a group containing a very erudite Anthony Pugh who was sometimes put Latin quotations in his memo and the very, very brilliant um, Sam Rothenstein who to this day I think is the most sharpest, intelligent woman I ever met in advertising. Um... And her mind was like a razor and very greatly helpful. I didn't have any idea of how to write advertisements. 
in fact, I had a, hardly any idea how to write anything. Um, it was a long learning process for me and very stressful. I found it very difficult indeed. Copywriters sat in one room, art directors in another, and you hardly ever met. Mm. So you didn't get that sort of camaraderie, that nice feeling together. Um, and this was genuinely, throughout the whole industry, that was how it worked. I was in a copy group, and I was a young copywriter. And in the next room, just incidentally, to show you the sort of eclectic way J. Woodrow Thompson collected people, was Bridget Riley, the pop artist. I mean, she was there. And so th there were lots of brilliant people around. It was very clubby, very wealthy, although you got very little money. It was just very posh, somehow it was the place to be. I don't think I'd ever been in anywhere so posh in my whole life because I was born in a very rough area of Finsbury Park in North London. And, I mean, it was very poor. My father was a lorry driver and my mother was a school dinner lady. Um, but that isn't to say I was ever deprived of anything. They were good people and they looked after me very well. It's just that it was very, very poor, so I'd never been to anywhere like this. In the next road, Alan Parker, the film director, was born and he never lost his accent but my I never acquired that Cockney <laughs> accent so it would have been crazy for me to start talking like David Bailey or Alan Parker <clears throat> um, I went to school at Muswell Hill into a grammar school and eventually left with five O levels being the longest person in education in my family ever um, went and did my national service became a in, worked in insurance, became a student teacher, then found myself in a, back in, in, in advertising. I applied for it, and the woman interviewing me and all the others who applied for this training course, which, after all, is imagine the investment in three years in a young person doing nothing but learning from you, um, was, a, was a tall, beautiful Italian countess with immaculate shoes and a lovely handbag. <laughs> and I was an even taller, fair-haired, thin-as-a-rake boy. And I think I got the nod. <laughs> <laughs> if I'd have been short and squat, I might not have done. Um, <clears throat> anyway, they took me on. And, as I say, I eventually got into the creative department, worked on things like OXO and cornflakes and different bits and pieces. But then they had they realised they had dozens too many copywriters and had a cull, and I was fired. And I can't tell you, to this day, what it feels like to be fired. You, you know what the word redundant means. You are surplus to requirements. It's an awful feeling. Everybody else has a job to go to and you don't. It didn't take me long to get another job in advertising. As I said, there were lots of jobs around. And I think I got a job in Mather and Crowther. But by that time, Colette Dixon and Pierce had started. And in, I'd been for an interview at CDP before I went to Mather and Crowther. And they offered me the job to work with them... Um, a famous packaging, Mike Peters, packaging designer. Um, why would I want to do that? I was offered a job to work at... Maidon Crowther was then the hot agency, and Colette Dickinson's was the beginning one. But very soon, Colette Dickinson started doing the sort of ads that everybody wanted to do. They were absolutely beautiful. And to this day, the sense of their perfect design, and which we now take for granted that advertising can look beautiful. It didn't ever look beautiful. Print advertising didn't ever... It looked... It could be effective. And the television commercials could be very effective. And particularly as they were making... Like Oxo would make 12 commercials a year. 
So think of that. They could bung a few away if they didn't work and just run ten. Um, Kit Kat would make five or six. Purcell would make uh, eight or nine. You know, Oxo would make... Uh, I was saying Oxo made lots. Um, but press was dreadful. It was like a fruit salad of type, you know, all over the place. So when you saw... Collating St. Pierce and then Doyle Dame Bernbart's work, it was a revelation. You would look through the New Yorker just to see the advertisements, to see a Chivas Regal ad, to see a, the latest Volkswagen ad or the latest Avis ad. You actually saw them as they appeared. And they were what for you are now historical documents, or for us were blinding revelations of how simple communication can be, how effective, how the reduction of elements can lead to a simplicity of viewing. Oh, my goodness, and the copy. It was so translucently, beautifully written, so witty and clever, not one word too many. Um, you just, you thought, can I, I, th I thought I could never write like that. I, and it, and I, indeed I couldn't. <laughs> <Let's be frank. laughs> um, I was never one of those writers who effortlessly writes down the middle of a page. I used to go in like curlicues of waves and all around it, and eventually end up then take twenty or thirty drafts, spinning them around the wall, till eventually they became a semblance of simplicity. Um, that's how it. I had to teach myself like that. But as soon <clears throat> as I'd left Jay Wharton. Maitland Crowther. I went to sort of, I went, I think, to, to Benton and Bowles with Gears and Gross and Brooks, Bob Brooks. And that was a different sort of thing. If J. Walter Thompson was a club, a beautiful, expensive club, and Maitland Crowther was a sort of university, this was a rag shop. <laughs> and it, it was really tough. Get back in their room. Get back in your room, Bob Gross was shut, and, and write those quick brew scripts. I want a dozen by lunchtime, you know. <laughs> oh, Christ. Um, but he was lovely. I love Bob Gears and Bob Gross. Gross, particularly, is dead now. And Brooks was always truculent, always aggressive. Um, but had that sort of bite and intensity that you knew was always going to deliver something wonderful. Um, <clears throat> then I went back to Ogilvy, Benson, and made them after I'd spent about a, a year trying to write poetry in a, a, a fruit farm in, in Essex. It was terribly cold. <laughs> I hardly wrote a word. I was frozen and hungry. And all I did was take a long, big St. Bernard dog for walks. Um, anyway, I, I finally got to Collet Dickinson Pierce that John Salmon took me on. And from then, I was about 27, 28, 26, 27. Then it was just beginning to blossom. Charlie Saatchi and Ross Cromer were down the corner, corridor. Grey Jolliffe was there. John Salmon, of course. Neil Godfrey was, had just left. He'd gone back to Doyle Dane. And, <clears throat> and so had Dawson Yeomans. But there were lots of very brilliant people there, Alan Parker and Paul Windsor. And they were all outdoing each other in television, but largely in press and posters as well. It was an agency with great... Crete credentials and I remember firing the Ford account when it came eventually because I I sort of after about a year at CDP I went, Doyle Dame Bernbach with David Abbott offered me a job I'd done some work at CDP which sort of established my 
ability to write about advertising and they liked it um, for different um, Whitbread and Ford and different people um, and I spent the next couple of years at Doyle Dane and then I got married and needed more money Vernon's offered me the creative directorship I'd always had this insecurity that comes with being born poor that you're going to be very poor again very quickly you know I never had that assurance of a comfort blanket I needed them and they offered me some double my salary and I spent about 18 months there before Wells Rich Green opened in London and Neil Godfrey went there and offered me the job to be his writer and I thought it might be the beginning of something big it wasn't it was really a staging post for the TWA account mm. and all I could do we worked did some ads for TWA. I, I learned to become a very good darts player. I mean, <laughs> I, I actually got to a stage of playing very good, very well. <clears throat> never, never professionally, you know, but being able to hit a double reasonably frequently. Um, um, and then John Salmon hired, and Frank Lowe hired us back at College Dickinson Pierce, both of us. And that was when our careers really took off. By that time, I was 32. And for the next 10 years, I worked at College Dickens and Pierce. And just everything fell into my lap. I had John Salmon as a creative director, who was always inspiring. I had Neil Godfrey, the best art director in Preston, print art director in the world making anything I wrote look beautiful. Uh, we took it for granted that we would win awards. We just would. Um, that everything we did that was good was sold. It wasn't like binned or... If it was very good, it would be sold. And I got to thinking that that was how advertising was. You know, you did something which you thought was very good. It was approved throughout the whole agency. And that was very important. It had to be signed off by every key person in the agency. So the account man presenting it could say, look, everybody in the agency has signed this off. Why can you, why are you demurring? And so the ads for Parker, the army officer, Clark's, Neff, just kept flowing. I, everything time you, you time you touch bird's eye, everything you touch seemed to sort of get a silver or a gold award or something of that sort. And um, I became a group head there. I looked after other people. I then became a creative director there. And um, but after about ten years there, I was fairly sure that. Again, this thing about needing to start an agency, needing to make money. Because in the early days at Collins and Pierce, the tax rate was 87%. 87%. And the people are bugging now about 50% for bankers. The tax rate was 87% on your highest income. And I wasn't earning a fortune, but I was still paying 80% on a large. So you couldn't ever establish yourself. You couldn't earn a lot. <clears throat> and I started an agency um, with Caroline Labar, the late Caroline Labar, Rob Morris, the wonderful Rob Morris, is a lovely art director, and the late Philip Gould, who became the spin doctor, if you, he hates that word, of the Labour Party. 
And we did some very good work. In fact, for the first couple of years, which was all the agency lasted for, um, <clears throat> we did we got more into the DNA D annual than colleagues and peers. But we could never pick up accounts. I couldn't get it. I couldn't understand why we couldn't put on business. We tried and we tried and tried, and then one year, the second year, we didn't win a thing. And we didn't even get asked, and we kept trying, and we thought... This is what's wrong, you know. Was it the fact that we had a woman managing director? She was very efficient. We never lost a penny. We accounted for everything. We never cheated anybody. We, you know, and we did good work, but we couldn't get accounts. Then Doyle Dane Birnbach said, Look, let us buy you because we want you to be our creative director. And they bought us for not very much money, um, but it was enough to pay for my children's education. And by that time, I needed money again. Um, and we joined them. To this day, I'm very disappointed about that. And Rob Morris, I know, is heartbroken about it. We wanted to start an agency, and it would have suited us. Mm. You know, we were nice people. We would have been a, made a contribution to advertising, I think. Uh, um, but it didn't work. And you know very quickly if something's not going to work. You know within a year, really. And while we started, Bartle Bogotelli started and just went zoom, you know. And we thought, well, they're, they're good, they're very good, but they're not better than us. <laughs> How is it, you know? Uh, couldn't get it, we couldn't get it. Anyway, we um, <clears throat> we joined Doyle Dane, and for a couple of years I did some very nice work there. Um, but the man who hired me, John Birnbach, Bill's son, really hadn't been honest with me. He was always going to leave, and I wanted very much him to stay there, to be a partner. I liked him hugely. But he left and went back to become International Creative Director of Doyle Dane Bambam. And I was offered jobs by other people, but eventually went back to Colin Dickinson. Da -da 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 -da. That took off again. We did some more lovely work, um, won some more awards. <clears throat> Great Ormond Street, different the police, different things. And um, it was all going very well, I thought. Um, <clears throat> but John O'Donnell wanted to be the single creative director. And um, it didn't really suit me. Um, he, he was a feisty young man and a good, very good creative person. Um, and I thought... I, do, I went to Darcy Macias, and, and it was a, a ridiculous thing to do, but it allowed me to work for three or four years at a very large salary and to stock up my pension fund. It was ghastly for the last two years, but that's another whole story. Um, it started very well. It became a, quite a good agency, one of the best bigger agencies in town. But it, you, you have to keep up a pressure, and the whole agency... <clears throat> was not geared for that. In fact, it was geared towards mediocrity, and you know this very well from what you've told me. There is a sort of, I don't know, a sort of implosive quality to it that drags you down. It will always reduce you to the minimum. You know, that an account member would come up to me and say, we're so pleased that you're here. We love you. We're so proud, you know, that you're here. And I know we want you to make all the changes, but you can't do them on my accounts. <laughs> because my accounts, I know what they want. 
I know what Kit Kat wants, I know what Whiskers wants, I know um, Mars, but leave them alone, don't touch them, you know. Um, they won't like you and they won't understand. And I thought, oh Christ, you know, gradually you, you were left with virtually nothing. And the difficulty of working in an agency like that is you can't hire very good people. They think, why should I go there? And um, But nonetheless, we did some very good work for a couple of years. Then the last couple of years were ghastly, but I, that's another story. I was about to leave advertising when David Abbott asked me to go and join Abbott Mead Vickers, and I went there for a couple of years. It was a lovely agency, very mature, very s civilised. And David was a great company, and he... he it was lovely to be there, but I hardly did any work while I was there. I, I never quite got hold of the system of how somebody would give you a brief. <laughs> you would think that having me there, they would give you briefs, but I hardly got any. Um, it was a strange situation. Um, so I left advertising and I drew a line over it. And for two or three years, wrote I wrote a couple of novels, not very good ones, but I wrote them. I sat down and wrote every day. <clears throat> and I wrote some more poetry while I was around, but then gradually... It became lonely. I missed my friends, I missed the companionship, the camaraderie of creative people. And my wife said, well, why don't you go and study? I thought, well, I haven't studied anything since I was grammar school. But I went to the <clears throat> Department of Continuing Education at Oxford and spent two years doing their foundation course in English, after which they persuaded me to apply to one of the Oxford colleges to do the other two years. And I was given a place. So suddenly, at the age of around 63 or 64, <laughs> I was joining the uh, St Edmund Hall and spending four days a week there in college, writing essays and, and reading books and going to lectures. And I have to say, I loved it. I loved every aspect about it. Um, and I loved being with the younger people which advertising, of course, prepares you for anyway. And I love their enthusiasm and their optimism, and I love the way they accepted me. Um, <clears throat> they were, of course, like younger than my own children, and I related to them like that. Um, <clears throat> it was... Um, are we running out of time? No, not at all. No. Plenty of time. Um, and that was a lovely experience. I, I graduated with a 2-1, which was about midstream, you know. And quite good, I thought, in the circumstances, because I had to really... I don't know if you know Oxford, your coursework doesn't count. It's all on your finals. You have to remember everything. And you have to write something like 25 essays in 10 days. You Three in the morning, three each morning, and you go along. But I, I got through it, and I did. And then I went to King's College in London after a couple of years and did my MA. And then that stopped. Um, I loved it all um, and then I thought well what now I had no idea and amazingly I was offered the job of um, doing freelance work for a packaging design company called Jones Knowles Ritchie I had never been to a packaging agency I didn't know anything about it I thought I'd meet three or four rather scruffy designers you know with witty t-shirts and a receptionist it's a huge company it's about 110 people and be the count people all beautifully dressed and lovely meeting rooms and very intelligent people and I immediately hit it off with Andy Knowles and I could work with Stuart Baker who was my an art director I'd work with and 
we've, we're now approaching our 50th sing, se- consecutive advertisement. I'd never written more than seven or eight advertisements for any client in my life. And here I was, I've written 50 of them. But they only come, sp- I do them in bursts. I was writing a piece of copy this morning before you came. And I think probably I'm coming to the end of that. So what I do after that, I don't know. <laughs> but that brings me up to date with my career. And at the time of speaking to you, I'm 74. Um, I'm grateful to advertising for keeping me and my brain alive and for feeding my family um, and for letting me meet other wonderful creative people whom I would never have met. Yeah. And, I mean, just would never have met them. And I'm... I have no no complaints at all. Um, There were other things I would have loved my agency to have done well. I'd have liked to work with some other people. Perhaps it would have been good to have left advertising around 45, you know, when you can do something else. But copywriters don't have that that many options. Art directors can always be interior decorators or photographers or film directors, but I was never interested in becoming a film director. I like the written word more. Um... So that's where I am up to the date now. Let me have a, a sip of coffee, <laughs> and then we can, you can ask me another question. Now, when you were at CDP, you talk about that, those 10 years that were, yeah. were pretty magical and everything kind of fell in your lap at that point. Yes. How much of that magic is down to the environment that you're in, and how much is it down to raw talent? Um. <clears throat> The environment is crucial. I actually worked at CDP three times, right at the beginning, in the 10-year golden period, and in the restoration period of three or four years um, after I'd, my, I'd worked at Dolde and Bamba. Um, <clears throat> it's absolutely crucial that everybody, like them, it's like a bar of iron. If all the molecules are pointing in the same direction, you get a magnet. If they're pointing in different directions, which they are in most agencies, you have no attraction whatsoever. Um, Everybody at CDP knew the rules. The primary one of which was nothing must leave the agency at all unless it's signed off. Nothing ever, ever, ever can leave the agency under any circumstances whatsoever. Even if the client is there in the way it cannot see it until it's been signed off. Consequently, we had a team of people taking ads around the agency all the time. Not only new ads, but ads when they were changed. Pieces of copy had to be signed off. Each version of a commercial had to be signed off. It it could not leave the agency unless it was signed off. Uh, Consequently, the screening got finer and finer and finer. That's good if the screening is good. It isn't good if somebody's saying, I know what the client wants, leave it to me. Mm. It had to be, is it wonderful? They were the words, is it wonderful? If it wasn't, it didn't leave. Of course, it did sometimes. Mm. But basically, that was it. And everybody in the agency knew that. The media department was geared to delivering the sizes of spaces we would need, not giving you a plan and saying, fill those spots. Yeah. You could say, I need a double-page spread in the Times, and it was their job to get it. I need 40 seconds, it was their job to get it. Um, it, it, It was not, we need every poster site in London, it was their job to get it. In other words, it was creatively driven. The planning department was geared to supplying the creative department 
with breeds it could work too. And and if it, if they didn't, then we'd have to fight another brief. You know, we'd have to find another strategy. That didn't happen very often, um, because the briefs equally had to go through the approval system. This very bureaucratic system only works, as I say, if everybody agrees to it. I've tried to get it into other agencies. They've all filibustered it. They've all refused it. Um, One way or another, they've denied it. They, They say it's a great idea, but we can't do it. They just won't do it. Um, so it, that was very important. But I'll give you an example of... We had a doorman at, at CDP who was an ex-sergeant major. You know, and um, I came in one morning. He said, um, my missus and I saw your latest commercial. I said, uh, that's one of ours, that's Tony's, that's one of ours. And I thought... That's wonderful. Even the doorman is proud of the work. Yeah. You know? And that was it was very important. Everything has to be wonderful. You cannot be a great agency if you only do a few good commercials a year. Everything, the bottle labels, the press ads, even eight inch doubles have to be great. If they're not, they shouldn't leave the agency. That's what you're paid for. And once you get that, it draws the goodness out of you. I I don't know if the creative people at Collegnison were that much more talented than anyone else around, I don't think they were necessarily. You could have taken some good people from other agencies and put them there and they would have flowered. But equally, you were given lots of time to do it. Mm. And some creative people can't do that. They drown in time, they get frightened. They can't go home night after night after night not having done it. They have to pretend that they've done it. Or they say things like, it's as good as I can do in the time. That never applied at Colin and Spears. It had to be good, irrespective of the time. Yeah. We were hurried, of course, and hassled sometimes. And some people were quicker workers than others. But if, you, if it didn't pass the system, it went back in. And that was a very good system. Mm. So that was, I think, as an, a good an answer as I can give to your yeah. question. So, so back... In those days as well, people were often saying that the adverts were the best stuff on the telly. That was where the real quality lay. And uh, we we look at advertising now, and people don't say that anymore. In fact, trust in advertising has gone down, and people's opinion of the industry isn't as glamorous as it used to be. How was it we had that magic back then, and why don't we have it now? Well, for a start... Advertising was something of a novelty then. Um, People weren't so tired of it. And the other thing was that two or three or four agencies did all the good work, and they all had a philosophy. And John Pierce's, who started College and Pierce, said, our philosophy was we should never do work for which we have to apologise, and I remember him saying this, for which we have to apologise in polite company. I didn't know what polite company meant, but I sort of imagined he was a Rovian, and I imagined him strolling around polite company, you know, saying, I, I'm not going to apologise for it. In fact, even today, people come up to me in the village, and they say, you did those Heineken commercials. In fact, I didn't. But they say, you did those Heineken commercials, and we thought they were wonderful. I did the Cinzano commercial, they say they were lovely too. Oh, yes, I'm pouring the drink. They remember them very well. Because 
we set out never to be discourteous. If you're entering somebody's home, you do not lecture them. You seek to be a courteous guest in their home and to amuse them and to induce them with, with fun and, and give them some delight and enjoyment. And we had some writers there who were very, very good at that. They were very funny people. A lot of them, Terry Lovelock, um, Peter, um, Dave Brown was a very good writer. Paul, gosh, what's his name? The um, Weinberger. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good guys. And lots and lots of funny, very funny people. Naturally witty. And they could do these commercials. And, and <clears throat> we got into the habit of doing funny commercials and casting different people. So people liked them. Whether they were the best thing on television or not, that became a sort of cliché. But we do know that they weren't resented. And we do know they were not neglected. And we do know some of them became very famous indeed. John Pierce said to me, Look, Tony... When a client leaves us, they disappear. They become anonymous. And Harvest Bristol Cream had left us, and we'd done some beautiful work for Harvest Bristol Cream. I mean, very, very funny, talented, lovely work. And they just thought they can do better somewhere else. And they left us, and you never heard of them again. They spent as much money, they just disappeared. And we would take risks we did the first two minute commercial that one for Fiat the Strada which for a long while afterwards oh, for a long while afterwards people could recite it to you just knew mm. how it worked and it became famous um, even today people remember fondly the Hamlet commercials mm. and um, but we worked at them very hard you know um, I remember once John Salmon going on holiday for a month and I had to gather all the Hamlet commercials. We needed two, and we got scripts from every writer in the agency, and there wasn't one good one. Mm. And we were in despair. And then within two weeks, three good ones came. And so you just have to keep at it. You could, we wouldn't present the, the ones that weren't good enough. You know, mm. We didn't think so. It doesn't relate to the standards. However, since I have left advertising, there has been a major change, and I think this was coming up to one of your questions here. The most noticeable one is that press and post-advertising, print advertising, has declined dramatically. And I can't understand this at all. I simply can't understand it. Um, But I was asked something like ten years ago to go to Wickham College of art and design, it's now a university, to see this, the work of the final year students there. And they all showed me their portfolios, and they were quite nicely designed. And I said, um, oh, where's, where's the copy? Um, they said, we don't write copy. And I said, well, which of you is the copywriter? And they said, oh, we don't call each other copywriters and art directors, and we're creatives. So I said, but you might, you might have to write some, you know. Clients often need it. You have to learn how to do it. But then nobody had taught them. I'm sure some people are taught, but the whole quality of writing, such as John Salmon and David Abbott, and I tried to attain to, is completely gone, it seems to me. I, I've been seen an advertisement for a very long while that I've been induced to read. 
by sheerly by the power of the headline or the quality of the copy that persuades me in any way that five minutes spent in this company won't be anything other than wasted time. It doesn't seem to charm me. It doesn't seem to create a tone of voice for the client. And this began, I think, it was beginning in my time when people like John Hegarty, who is a man of many, many great talents, but one of them surely is not copywriting, started to put it around that nobody reads ads anymore. And there's a lot of proof for that. There's a lot of evidence for it. But it's a vicious circle. Nobody reads them so that nobody learns to write them, so that nobody reads them. And, you know, it, um, and you, you'll notice of um, Bartle Bogle Hegarty's work that is very, very high on television and very, very low. They've done some good work on press, but nothing really outstanding in press, I don't mm. think. Nothing compared with David Abbott's Sainsbury's campaign or the RSPCA campaign. Nothing of that quality at all. Um, they just don't know how to do it. I don't know if anybody does. But to do it that well, you have to believe in it. You have to believe that having something to say is important. And if you start from the process that there is nothing to say, then you will never look hard enough. You will never find anything to say. For example, if you take Volvo advertising 20 years ago, it always had something to say. Now it, has, it doesn't say anything anymore. Ford has never had anything to say. Um, consequently, you don't know what, really what Ford stands for. I mean, I, I can't tell you what Ford stands for. I can't even tell you really what Mercedes stands for because they don't tell me anything and surely they must have something to say. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> I find this a great weakness in advertising. It's more than that, though. I think there is a, a just a general weariness about it. And it's stemmed, I think, from a great overwhelming similarity in commercials, which is come about by amazing technology where you can just do any amazing visual trick you like and you can be bewitched by this to the point where you can do such fantastic things and clients can be mesmerized by it and they can play around with it the clients can contribute clients love contributing they can contribute as much as they like and they won't change anything they won't damage it because it was undamageable, you know, they wouldn't damage the grammar because there was no grammar in the first place of the commercial. Um, and some are outstandingly beautiful. But there are others which look similar and they, it's very hard for the casual viewer to distinguish. I, I mean, there are, of course, some commercials on the box which are very distinguished, I mean, or distinguishable, like the Meerkats campaign. Like it or loathe it, it is very distinguishable. It, you can't mistake it for anything else. But there's an awful lot of other stuff that, that you think, what was all that about? Uh, was it talking to me? Um, very few campaigns, too, great campaigns. For example, if by chance uh, CDB had come up with that gorilla commercial for the cabras, I'm not sure we would have done, but we might have done. You know, We always had this Doyle Dane Bernbach rule that if you can take the product out of a commercial and it still makes sense, then it probably isn't very good. 
and this one had no product in whatsoever, so I don't know what we'd have said to that. But if we had have come up with it, for sure as light, we'd have done another four or five commercials with the gorilla in. He would have become the most loved gorilla mm. in Britain. We'd have made a campaign out of it. I don't know why they didn't. They had a property, and they seemed to... It went away, you know. And you could have done some great commercials with the funny gorilla and Ronnie Wood, or, you know. <laughs> I know he could have done brilliant commercials. So, um, <clears throat> but they didn't. Um, maybe they lost confidence in it. I sense a lack of confidence in advertising generally. Maybe it's the time has passed. Maybe the maybe the fascination with it has gone. But now I can record anything I want on my television and I can zap the commercials at 32 times the normal speed, gone. And I do it, you know, and I suspect if I'm doing it, an awful lot of people are doing it. As for the commercials which pop up on your Google screen, they drive me absolutely crackers, you know, of the, the advertisements. And in fact, I've found something called Ad Block done in America by some retired creative person he writes i do this for a living in other words send me money please um um and that gets rid of some of them but i've never seen anything that comes up on my screen which charms me as for virals well how lovely if we could all do those and and they probably have a place and some of them are great fun but they're not we're not, they're not real big advertising for big clients. You can do them as well and amuse another sector. Um, but it, it seems to be the belief that to grow a brand, you've got to do big national advertising. And I'm convinced, I will always be convinced, that press and posters have a place in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. So you were creative director of agencies at this wonderful high point in the in the industry yes. what what advice what what have you learned from that time that you think you could give advice to creative directors these days i'm not sure that i was ever a brilliant creative director or a brilliant manager of people um i tried my best and i know how hard a job it is because you can't be absolute mates with everybody. If you are the sole judge of an agency, you're on a sort of pinnacle. And you're not loved by anybody, really. Um, the account people want things quicker than you can do them, and the creative people are slightly in awe of you. So I, I believe in a few rules. First of all, you must assure your creative people that you love them, that you really take care of them and their careers. You're as concerned for their careers as more than for your own. You never take their work and pretend it's yours. In fact, the other way round, if you do a few changes to their work, you never say that you influenced it or claimed it in any way. It's always theirs. Um, you can't always give them more money, but you can always tell them they're worth it. Um, I believe in treats for them. The difficult thing for a creative director is not when you're shown something brilliant, that's easy, you can say congratulations. And it's not so difficult when you're shown something terrible, because you can say, I'm awfully sorry, you know, I think we better have another go at this. The difficult thing is 
there were two difficult things. One is the the sort of 70% of work which is neither wonderful or terrible. Do you, pro- do you proceed with it and try to improve it? Or do you get another team on it? And this is the second. Taking a team off of an account and putting another team on is a very difficult thing to do. It's hurtful. And Dave Trott got round this by building it into the machine. Everybody got a brief for a week. I mean, a team got a brief for a week. At the end of that week, it moved to another team. Automatically, no question. At the end of that week, it moved to another team. Automatically, no question. That's how it is if you want to work here. That's how we work it. And I was amazed at the quality of work that that produced. It sharpened everybody's mind very very well. I never believed in gangbang thinking. Um, we always believed in trusting one team with it. We never got four or five teams onto it. We always just put one team onto it, and until they proved they couldn't do it, we trusted them. In other words, we worked on the basis, if you put six teams onto it, everybody would do just enough to fulfil their function. If you put one team onto it, the agency lives or die by them, and they've got to do it. And we found that gave better results. Um, I think to make a... I tried to do this and never really succeeded, to make allies of the planners. I really do think planners should... Um, report to the creative director not to the account person otherwise they become surrogate account people they should become part of the creative process and they shouldn't take eight weeks to come up with a strategy they should come up with three or four different strategies in ten days and we'll do work to all of them and see which works You know, we'll just play around with them play, well, let's play, keep playing with them and see which works um, Otherwise, you found that they, you were given 12 weeks to do a job, and eight weeks was done on the strategy. A week getting the strategy approved, and you, the creative department had three weeks to do the work, mm. if sometimes less. And that was insane, simply insane. Um, so uh, I would say somehow you've got to find a, a, an alliance with the planning department that you work very closely together, befriend them. Um, as you would in a pitch, rather than on an on- ongoing thing. Um, I really insist that the creative people go to the factory, go to the, the workers, not leave it to other people to do it. They must go and dig like investigative journalists. Mm. I insist that they do that. I don't honestly have great advice. I can tell you all the mistakes I've made with people, but that wouldn't help. They're the flaws in my psychology. <laughs> um, I've hired some poor ones and thought they would be good. But I also had some very good young ones. I trusted some people who were not trustworthy. But that, that's how it goes. You know, you, 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 you win and lose. Um, you have... I'd never learnt how not to feel desperately unhappy if I if something was turned down, not to feel it right in my stomach. Um, it hurt an awful lot. Um, I don't know how people manage to go home when things, you know, put it aside. Um, different people work differently. David Abbott could only start a creative pitch a few days before. I would start six weeks before and do about 20 campaigns. I'd worry and worry and worry. You know, it was, he, he needed the pressure of saying, extempore, do it now. Mm. 
and he trusted himself to do it and by and large he did um, he could go into sort of super drive and do it um, brilliant um, I don't think I have any other advice um, <laughs> I really don't think so I don't think I'm any person to give another creative director I would, the best creative director I worked with by a long way was John Salmon and he was very paternal he if you turned your work down, you never felt like a shit. You never felt like an idiot. You always walked out of the room wanting to do it again and do it better. He had a lovely way of laughing at even things which are not very terrible, not very good. And so, oh, gosh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Wonderful. Hey, how about if we just do a bit like this? And, um, it's oh, terrific. Um, so you always felt wonderful when you walked out of his door. You never felt like a dish rag. Um, he could sometimes give wonderful, very incisive little briefs to, for Parker Pens, for example. Um, he would say to me, look, I, I have a feeling this is about writing, not about pens, it's about writing. As soon as he said that, the campaign just went... Yeah. I did, did the whole campaign in a week, yeah. know, with Neil Godfrey down in the basement of Colette Dickinson Pen. <laughs> we locked ourselves away and just did it. Um, we also did a spoof campaign we put around the walls so people could come in and say, Christ, look, they're off the wall, they're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we had the other campaign. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> There's a general fascination with what the advertising industry was like back then. I suppose Mad Men has kind of spun out of that, that general interest. Was it really uh, drinks cabinets in the creative director's offices and smoking cigars in meeting rooms? Never, 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 no, no. I'm, I never saw a bottle of scotch or anything like that. In John Pierce would walk around the agency with a glass of whiskey occasionally. I thought it was very um, bohemian of them. There was a lot of wine drunk at lunchtime in some agencies. And at College of St. Pierce, when we had our beautiful offices in the Euston Road, we had executive dining rooms and the quality of the food and wine was lovely there. But I never saw anybody in an agency with a bottle of wine on their desk. Never. As for cocaine, I had no idea. I wouldn't recognise it today. But some people say it was taken. Yeah. I don't think it was ever taken at C2B. If it was, I didn't know about it. I like people to be in early. I like them to be in on time. I like them not to be... I, I would say to them, how can I possibly ask for more time if you're not here? You know come in on time it's a business we, it's a real business and it's an important business and we should be professional um, I never bought into this I'm a creative person I wear wacky clothes and don't come in come in <laughs> I would say <laughs> work <laughs> let me see you at your desk <laughs> um, so now that you've been out of the industry for more than 15 years now um, you've got a, a different perspective on the industry how, how do you see it, its role in society or um, wh what it adds to commerce how do you see it now well I'm trying hard not to be an old fart and saying it was better in those days because it wasn't always but by and large I think we had the best of it and I think young people today are unlucky I don't think I think they would flourish under the circumstances which gave rise to our good advertising and the atmosphere that sparkled it and the company of people like John Webster and 
Paul Arden, people like that. He, they would love that. And the amount of money and the confidence the clients had in it. I sense that that's gone. The work I see on the television looks as if its clients have had a very heavy hand on it. For example, I saw a Heinz baked beans commercial, the first they'd run for a long while the other day. It was an insipid, limp, pitiful version of a commercial yeah. that used to run by YNR all those years ago. I mean, you realise how what a great campaign that was. Beans means Heinz. What, what a wonderful line. <laughs> I, just, I could never have written that. It's just so clever. Um, and you realise that you don't sense that over-brimming confidence which gives rise to sort of sparkle and taking absurd risks sometimes and with the media and with the time and um, even when it's done for example with Honda five or six years ago do you know what I'm referring to those long commercials they did yeah. well they won lots of awards but I remained unconvinced they didn't really there was something lacking, and I think what was really lacking was a wonderful press campaign to give you the information on which the commercials rested. Mm. As it were, they were just, for me, puff, you know, the stuff that clouds are made of, beautifully shaped and lovely, but somehow it didn't add up to a campaign for me. And that's what I'm tempted to miss, a very hard kernel of this is a business and we're selling a product. Put that right in your heart and then let's do the advertising and, and see how wonderful and be excited by it. Mm. I was sent yesterday, I must just tell you this, by Bob Marchant in Australia, a commercial for someone who's selling their house. And they must have made it themselves. It's a beautiful house. But it was an, a naked guy walking around his house and just getting up and walking around. It's, you just see his bum and his shoulders. He's a very well-built guy. And his wife is naked. He's on the sofa asleep like this. And you think, what on earth is going on? But you see every aspect of the house illustrated. And, um, and the pool and the windows and everything in the garden and from the lovely staircase. He's walking down, making toast and thing completely naked. Um, and it says at the end, a guy comes in who's the real estate guy, and he said, um, this is number 28 Houston Drive. It's so private, you can walk around naked. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, I wish I'd done that. Yeah. Such a beautiful idea, so beautifully executed. And you think somebody very clever must have done that. And occasionally you see a commercial and you think, I wish I was in advertising again. You know, you can do things like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so when was the last time you actually wrote an ad? Oh, I'm still writing them now for JKR, Jones Knowles Ritchie. Um, but they're press ads and they run on the back page of Marketing Week. I was asked by them four years ago if I could write about their philosophy. And I thought, well, what philosophy can a pack designer have? And I went and saw them and interviewed them and talked with them for hours. And I wrote one ad, then I wrote in three or four more with Stuart Baker, the art director, then we did another eight or nine, then we did another ten, and we're coming up to number 50 now. Um, they're not all wonderful. There's a degree to which you can show a pack and say why we did it. But some of the most famous, the best-loved ads by marketing people are those which don't show the pack. But, for example, we showed one of a, <clears throat> a boss 
and a rather meek junior brand manager sitting by him and there's a pack on the table and the headline says before I pass judgment on the pack design I invite my junior brand manager to comment and it was like it was like 500 words of how to judge a pack what you can say in these circumstances and that went down a storm with junior brand managers because suddenly they felt somebody on our side in you know, yeah. that awful position I've seen it in brand in meetings haven't you they're all sitting along that side and the top man says, well, what do you think? You know, this yeah. poor girl who's just come out of university thinks, what the fuck can I say about this? You know? <laughs> so we wrote an advertisement putting ourselves in his or her position and saying this. And that went, so there, there, is a, there is an opportunity, if you think widely enough, about what to do. We're just trying to write one on how to write a brief. Mm. Um, but the difficulty is not being smug or superior or patronising, mm. and we've got to tread that line very well. And I haven't written that one yet. Mm. Um. Now you've got more DNAD silverware than just about anyone else. Um, I, I think any other copywriter. Um, I think sure there are designers, and of course Neil Godfrey's got a few more than me. Um, I think it's seventeen silvers and three golds. Mm. Um, so that. But I have to say, if I was starting now as a young man, I couldn't possibly imagine, and if I got one or two, I would be highly delighted. And I congratulate anyone who's got it. It was just the right time, in the right place, as you sometimes sow things in a garden and they flourish. And in another garden, they wouldn't. Mm. And I was very lucky to be there at the right time, in the right place, with a brilliant creative director and a, and a managing director who just said this is what we're doing Frank Lowe of course yeah. and I have to say that a great many creative people would have done as well as me I was just in the right place at the right time also I did have the right ethos, I mean I believed in it I mean I believed in doing that as working hard at it but I, I, I see other people work hard and I've worked, I've moved to other agencies and got slated at the last Ten years of my career, I would say, whereas at College Institute, ninety percent of my work was approved. In these agencies, ninety-five percent of it was turned down. It's just never saw the light of day. It can happen. Yeah, yeah. So, what what do you think the the rule of advertising awards are, and 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 is it as important as it used to be? It's important, so long as they don't so long as their value is upheld and they don't just become common currency so it's not devalued um, everybody will always want to win them and I, I do think it's useful and helpful when I look through the DNA AD annuals though these days I notice that more and more of them are for like niche products and fringe areas and a commercial bought in from Spain or something of that sort I don't see so many commercials for big brands big awards for big brands um, to agree that's always been the case it was always easier for me to win an award for Great Ormond Street and who could not um, do that um, than it would be to win an award for Purcell sometimes I feel that there should be a gradation as there is for di diving you know like a degree of difficulty <laughs> 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 so working for Mars would be 
10 plus difficulty working for Great Ormond Street would be one. You so, know, so you take share valuation. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, 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 and um, yeah, you have, yeah, something like that. Um, um, so that an award, if you got an award for Purcell, and there, there was a time 20 years ago when they did some wonderful commercials, they truly dis should be really applauded. And um, chocolate bar, I mean, like Kit Kat commercials, there have been some brilliant commercials. They're not running them now. Mm. Um, or if they are, I don't notice them. Yeah. You do need to keep three or four a year going so that the campaign builds a momentum. Like in the end, we were only ever doing two new Hamlet commercials a year, but they seemed to contribute and bring back memories of the campaign that had gone before. Heineken, we'd make three or four a year. Um, but they had to be very, very good ones. And by and large, they were. Mm. Mm. Everybody would try, but not many succeeded. You know. So to to round off, um, if you were able to give the industry some advice just now that might be able to help it in a, a generally positive direction, um, as we sort of focus on the future of the industry, what would that advice be? And I'm really putting you in the spot. <laughs> yes. Um, I would say it, it must be wonderful. If it isn't wonderful, don't present it. Just keep at it. A client can't approve something dreadful if he hasn't shown it. Um, it just must be wonderful. And um, then if you do it wonderfully, you'll go home and sleep well at night. You might have your heart broken occasionally when it's turned down. But at the end of your career, you look back and said, "I made a contribution." You know, you think I I did as best as I could. Um, so I believe that great work works, and that bad work has never worked, and there's no excuse for it. Don't do it. You know, just don't do it, and force the client to approve something wonderful. Yeah. Tony, that was absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. And a big thanks to Tony for being so warm and welcoming and so interesting as well. And also for being my taxi driver on the day. Now, we've got one more of these special edition episodes coming tomorrow. So that's your last one in the series tomorrow. Please stay tuned and I'll hopefully see you at the DNAD 50th Anniversary Bash on Tuesday. Bye for now. The Future of Advertising podcast is brought to you by Additive the marketing industry's most inspiring training company. Find out more about our talks, workshops and inspiration sessions at getadditive.com and get one third of your first booking by joining our mailing list. Shh.